everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. To know the foot is to know movement. This week, Dr. Emily Splickle explains the importance of the foot and how it directly affects biomechanics. But beyond the obvious linkage between foot strike and performance, Dr. Emily educates the crew on the evolution of the bipedal human from primate. She also explains how influential fascia is both in terms of kinetics and neuromuscular coordination. If you think the training of the foot was as simple as doing some arch work and stability exercises, think again. Here it is, episode 377. Power Athlete Nation! What's happening? This is Luke. And this is Tex. Hello. Hi, this is John Wellborn. John Wellborn, founder, CEO, Power Athlete special friend of the show thanks for joining us today john really uh i was gonna say the um really like the the north star like the uh you are the beacon yeah the the beacon the divining rod you know for this podcast (laughs) oh no Uh, the the gravitational pull Mm -hmm. yeah you're pulling us down (laughs) well it's actually the gravitational pull i mean it's just i mean without Uh, it it would just be meh yeah, who knows? Mm-hmm. But ladies and gentlemen... Keep us grounded. <laughs> uh, what did I want to say? Oh, so I'm halfway through the um, the blog about how to run a top 200 podcast, right? And I, it's just like memory lane. So the official birth date, do you guys know what the official birth date of the podcast is? Uh, 2013. February 10th at about 4 p.m. is when the first episode... Went live on the internet. Two questions. One, what day of the week? And two, what Saturday. Was, what was Saturday. the weather? Uh, Booty would tell us. It, <laughs> we know the humidity. but So that's... Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Huh? <laughs> on the, dude, I got the funniest email uh, on uh, Facebook from, for Johnny Wad. And this guy's like, I'm looking for the old CrossFit football. Yeah. Did you see that? Yeah. <sighs> and then he wanted me to send him the... I'm like, I'm, listen, dude. Just sign up, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so, I, you know, we never really... that. Do we want to call that the birthday of Power Athlete Radio? The Power Athlete podcast. Radio, yes. In strength and conditioning. Ing. So that would be Feb 10. We got to throw it on the calendar. We're going to have an extravaganza that day where we're just going to hit record and leave. <laughs> and people are going to listen to silence and we're going to say, which show did you like better? The, literally the show, two hours of nothing or the first episode of me, Denny, and Steve. <laughs> did, uh, uh, Does the audio exist? Yeah, I got it. I'm going um, to include it, I think, in the blog Did post. we ever release it? Uh, not if it, It's not on iTunes, no. So the hilarious thing is I, and I forward you that guy's a review about, like, um, I'm on a boat, and I, like, had to join in to be able yeah, to leave you yeah, one-star review. Yeah, I was yeah. like, that sounds like oh, yeah, $10 of... Yeah, I'm paying $10 for 50 megabytes of data just so I can leave this negative review that you suck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that wasn't our podcast, though. It would be if our podcast was like that first episode. Long story short, that has nothing to do with anything other than... Do you think people on- are more spoiled now? With, with like, um, like back when podcasts started, yes. you know, we were like, you know, the trash yeah. truck would come, and mm-hmm. now all of a sudden we have, like, mics and headphones and um, editing. I don't know. Short answer is, you know, I think that it's a relatively low barrier to get... The technology is so much cheaper now to get a, a decent solo or one guest show that really back then we we just didn't know what we were doing. And that like I like I'm proud to say that what we did is for this show, in my opinion, parallels 
one of my favorite Dave Grohl quotes, or what would you call it, yeah. uh, parables, where he was reflecting on how America's Got Talent is not the way to become a rock star. The be- way to become a rock star, in his opinion, was to get some shitty guitars, go in your buddy's garage, suck for 10 years, suck for another 10 years, and then maybe one day you walk out there and you're Nirvana, right? And I think that that's just such a, it's just such a cool, he's just so cool, and that's such a cool thing to say. And like and when you look back at Dave Grohl is cool. He's the coolest dude. He like, is almost is, Shia LaBeouf cool. It, <laughs> no. I put him above Shia. Uh, I'll give you that. That who's is a, cooler. That is uh Dave Grohl or Tony Hawk. Mm, they're on Dave e- Grohl. You're giving him uh, Yeah. He probably he was in two of the biggest rock bands in the yeah, planet. He, he was in Nirvana and Foo Fighters. And then like one of my favorite Dave Dave Grohl moments is Kiss Guy. The Kiss Guy videos. Yeah. The if you listen, guys, if you haven't watched Kiss Guy, Dave Grohl, Foo Fighters on YouTube, do you think that, that was screen, staged? I don't, I don't, because I deep dove it one weekend, and it it seemed to be legit. Like they did a local news thing on him, uh, wherever he's from. I think it might have been El Paso, and all they interviewed his buddies. Like, no, this dude had play had, like he learned to play the guitar to Foo Fighters and knows every Foo like. Oh, he slayed yeah. it. Like, and, and the best is Dave Grohl. Like, the look on it's his like, face. Like, when he goes into the solo, the look on... The, he's like... Mm-hmm. Like, heads explode. Ultimately came back to that That Kiss guy was, like, training... Like, that was his Super Bowl, and he's been training his whole life for it. Uh, and he showed up ready to just shred. Dude, the best is he goes to give him a pick, and he already, like, pulled one yeah, out of his yeah. pocket. He's like, he's already got a pick! <laughs> and then he, and he set the guitar up and shredded. Now, could it have been staged? Possibly, but Dave does Grohl's it like was? Now. Does it really matter? I'll, no. I'll tell you. Even if it was staged, I still would. I choose still be not in. to believe. Uh, but this did show. You, ha- did you observe his footwork? The kid's footwork. Uh, yeah, it was epic. He was in Vans, high tops, and toes forward the whole time. And he would start in a high power position, not this toes out. No, nah, he was in like a monster, like dinosaur, like big wide stance, just mm-hmm. shredding toes forward. Which is more in line with what we're going to be talking about today, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we are talking with Dr. Emily Splickle. It's not the CH, it's the K- Splickle. And uh, she is a podiatrist. We got connected with, to her through one of our Block One coaches, who's one of the more progressive thinking PTs that we've come across, sure. which our whole PT crew is. Sure. Um, but Matt, Dr. Matt Zanis connected us with her. But before we talk the foot, which really takes up maybe 10 to 15% of airtime, we get into some really jiggy... We, uh, intro. Yeah, not biomechanics. Imperios, no, septive. It, it was like fascia-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, pro, and CNS. It's on the other side of proprioception. It's yeah, interception. It's yeah, internal proprioception. We, yeah. we go deep, people, uh, and strap yourself in. Get your notebook out because you're going to learn a lot this, this episode. Oh, if you're a coach... Sucks. It changes, it shifts the paradigm. It doesn't disregard the importance of biomechanics, but mostly it's about understanding how biomechanics is influenced neurologically as well. Not just neurologically, but emotionally. Yep. And this whole thing ties into what's what's been a, a mission of ours that we decided to carry is how can we reduce the risk of ACL injury? And just so happens that we continue to get validated, we're talking about the foot. We knew it had something to do with it, but then this thing goes all upstream and really lays into a lot of the principles we cover in our ACL injury prevention course, right? Yes, and this conversation that you're going to listen to today explores 
injury in general neurologically. Mm-hmm. And that is something we deep dive and focus on within the ACL injury course because we view it as a movement problem and we provide movement solutions. So not structural solutions as we'll get into today, but also just the how to identify the potential risk for an injury with your athletes or you as an individual's movement through movement screenings and then a training system and program to bolt on to your strength training to put you in a position to learn how to move to prevent this injury. No-brainer, people. I strongly encourage you. Are you a stakeholder in an athlete's life? That means you're a coach, you're a parent, you're a sport coach, strength coach. You might even be a, a sports med doc who's or ATC who's working with athletes as well. You need to dig into this course. Head to powerathletehq.academy.powerathletehq.com. You will see a web page. That web page front and center will show you our flagship course, Power Athlete Methodology. Right under that, you're going to see the ACL Injury Prevention course, and you need to dig into this stuff. So head there now. Get your notebooks out because this is a dense one. It's a fun one. It's all over the place, but it stays shockingly out of cinema. I guess we talked about Billy Madison once, maybe. Well, yeah, in the beginning. And then <laughs> I was looking for an angle to foot, foot, foot loose in, but we just didn't have that lane. So there you go. That's all humor. you need to do. Right? You get uh, it, John? Is that what you're calling these days? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, I'll, I'll go with uh, this. I'll put my foot burn. in my mouth. Hey, oh. Well, I, you know, I was hoping for a little bit more burn ban on when we were getting into, like, our foot pictures. Oh, yeah, and we get our feet to yeah, yeah, so we're all very We should have done a video neutral? next time. Next time. Very mm-hmm. neutral foot? No, well. I got extra toes. Yeah, but Luke we... has extra toes. John's... Neutral. Neutral. You're she neutral. did. She did compliment your alignment, mm. but then we had, yeah, unremarkable, unremarkable, unremarkable. Three unremarkable feet, which means good. Can't that's be an excuse. The, yeah, like <laughs> which is like yeah. when you get an yeah, MRI or when somebody goes through, if it's unremarkable, that's actually a good thing. Yeah, and let's talk about great things on the we'll podcast. Talk about remarkable. <laughs> let's get into our podcast. Let's get ready. That's to podcast. a transition. That is a transition. Let's do it. So, Doc, uh, before do you, we get going, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of introduction? This is this is your floor. We're passing the baton over to you. Let them know why they should be interested in what you have to say. How did you get to where you're at now? Yeah, cool. So, um, thank you for having me on. Uh, my name is Dr. Splickle. Dr. Emily is what I go by. Um, I'm a podiatrist, but I am more of a functional podiatrist, or I call myself a black sheep of a podiatrist, even though this Dr. Cohen. And so my approach with podiatry is uh, very anti-orthotic, anti-supportive shoes. I try to get people to reconnect to their feet through barefoot science, through sensory science. I actually like neuroscience more than I like biomechanics. So I try to get uh, athletes, coaches, trainers, the layperson to appreciate the power of the foot from a sensory perspective versus just saying, I have high arches, I have flat feet, I have limited ankle dorsiflexion. That's all biomechanical, which is great, but there's this whole other layer to what our foot actually does. Um, So in addition to doing podiatry, I'm a human movement specialist, I'm Um, going through my fellowship in functional medicine because the body is just really complicated and integrated and I want to understand stress levels and sleep and mind body and free radicals and how all that stuff influences patients as well. 
And then I've been in fitness for 20 years and I got into fitness and movement and podiatry by being a competitive gymnast. So that's kind of what led me into uh, a passion for barefoot movement and just movement in general is that I've been moving since I was six on a high, high performing level. Um, and now I still do aerials and body weight training and stuff like that. Doc, I, I hear a bit of an accent. Where are you from? I'm from North Dakota. Okay, that's what it is. Not a North Dakota accent, though. I don't know what this is. Uh, it's it like, yeah, it was like, I, I couldn't put it. It was like a Minnesota, North Dakota, Canadian. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Not, not New Yorker? No, no. I, I was like, man, it's, uh, yeah, I, I was going to say Minnesota, but that was wrong. But yeah, North Dakota, that makes sense. I had the opportunity to catch one of your old presentations from 2016, one of the NSCA clinics or conferences and there was a lot of solid takeaways that I want to point you in the direction to share and the first one you've already mentioned and alluded to you're more focused on neurological advances than biomechanics or, or structure of the foot and most of the podiatrist or foot doctors Luke actually went to a foot doctor and they told his 10-month-old baby that she needed orthotics uh, so Many of the foot doctor experience are focused on biomechanics. So direct us back to the importance of movement and the neurological side of things. Uh, so real quick, let me uh, start that by saying it's kind of not the fault of the podiatrist because that's what we're taught in school, that we're literally taught only foot biomechanics. We're not taught about fascia. I've actually been trying to get back into the podiatry schools to teach them about mechanoception, ex exteroception, interoception, fascia, neuroscience, like literally everything I speak about. Um, so it, they only know what they know based off of what they're introduced to. Um, but that layer of biomechanics is layer one. The neuroscience sensory side to it is really the power of the skin in the bottom of the feet, um, how the skin in the bottom of the feet has very special nerves, nerves that are continuously reading the environment. They read every step that we take. The nerves are sensitive to vibration, which is what impact forces are. So every time your foot hits the ground, vibrations are transmitted. So it's your ability to perceive and anticipate those vibrations that allow you to control movement um, and allow you to load and unload the potential energy of every step. So really we are able to do the crazy stuff that we do, a gymnast doing crazy tumbling passes or, or people doing high box jumps and things like that because of the vibrational potential energy of gravity in the ground. That's my fascination. That's what I want people to harness. And then that communicates from the skin in the bottom of the foot through the fascia that surrounds every muscle in your body and is integrated so that your feet and your core or your foundation and your center can talk to each other and create just a machine of stability and power transmission and efficiency. So this may be like a really trivial question, but is there like, is there an evolutionary or I'll go with that evolutionary reason that the feet are so complex and high value other than the obvious? Like, does, does that make sense? 
Yeah. So uh, I, I'm fascinated in evolution and everyone has their own take. Some people don't believe in evolution. So if you if you don't just, I don't know, block your ears or something. You like mean that. the world's not 6,000 years old? <laughs> I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> just conversations and stuff like that. But I'm a scientist, so I'm going according to evolution. Um, having said that, here we go. So when you look at the evolutionary changes of bipedalism and a primate to a homo sapien or upright, uh, where changes happened were in the foot and in the pelvis. That's where you see changes, most changes between a primate and and a human that can walk upright. You mean like a and, bipedal versus like a quadrupedal or like, you exactly. know, like how they yeah. use like the knuckles. Yeah. Yes. hundred percent. So if you look at a primate's foot versus a human foot, a primate's foot has a thumb. So it's like our hand because they climb things and they are just navigating the environment completely different. As soon as we became bipedal, the changes in the foot that had to happen biomechanically is that our lever point became our ankle. The primate's lever point is their midfoot or the uh, talonavicular joint, for those that know the foot, it's the midfoot. So they push off of their foot like a cat or a dog does, which is different than our, our foot. Our ankle is not the same as a primate's ankle. Um, so that was important. And then the thumb of the primate came in to become what's called the first ray into the big toe joint. And that allows us to become a rigid lever. Our foot creates a rigid lever, which if forever, whoever's listening is, um, if you did a calf raise and you look at your foot, when, you're, when you do a calf raise, your foot right now is in a rigid lever. That is how you take a step. Our ability to become a rigid lever is the linchpin to advances in humans. That, that position is like Mecca. So if you cannot achieve that, you get actually, you can call them reverse evolution. <laughs> you kind of go the other way, which is where people start to get bunions or you don't become efficient or you can't um, take as long of strides. You don't get reciprocal arm. If you don't walk the right way, you don't get blood flow to the brains. So you start to get dementia. Like everything just kind of goes the other direction. And it really does go back to the rigid lever position of the foot. Um, those are all biomechanical changes that happen and that are critical. Well, the, um, I do know that if, uh, they remove your big toe, you can't walk, but yet if they remove all any other toe other than your big toe. So like I, I saw something that had to do with, uh, with soldiers and IEDs and like, you know, foot, um, damage. And they said that if, uh, like you lost every toe, but the big toe, you could still walk. If they lose the big toe, then they're not able to walk. Are you saying John? Just the big toe or yeah. if all five go? So like all four, as long as the big toe is there, you can be mm -hmm. able to, you know, walk in a normalish way. But the absence of the big toe, like that's a kind of a game changer. Then they had to create orthotics and um, artificial deal. And that was a big issue. And, and it really was to reinforce this lever that I've had some patients who have had hallux amputations, whether it's traumatic or gangrene because they had diabetes or something like that. Um, and you essentially put a feeler and build up like an orthotic prosthetic to mimic a lever so they can still take normal strides and things mm. like that. Um, what's really cool with the big toe that a lot of people are not talking about is there's a muscle synergy between your big toe 
the muscle, which is your flexor hallucis longus, pushes your toe down, and your posterior pelvic floor or your levator ani. The, that just evolutionarily is literally everything I speak about. I, I totally see that um, text is like wanting to make some jokes of that, but he's <laughs> like, she said levator ani, but. Uh, he does, yeah, uh, he doesn't have the capacity for those jokes, but um, I appreciate it though. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Come on, make that joke. Yeah, I already made it 10 times in my head. It's just the <laughs> delivery. I'm working and practicing my delivery. Uh, so so that, that connection, how, why, what was the necessity that created that connection? Is it just being bipedal and upright? Yes. So your foundation with the ground, your contact point with the ground, which is your foot, but it's more specifically the skin in the bottom of the foot. Because remember, this is we're training the nervous system, we're training the brain. If you don't have a nervous system, you are not moving. Um, so the bottom of the foot, skin, big toe, has to communicate with where your center of gravity is because now you're standing upright, right? So you need to like balance in gravity. So it has to communicate with where that center of gravity is in order for you to balance when you're walking. That most critical period of stability is at the rigid lever, which is push off, which is power output when you're thinking of walking or running or jumping. Is this something we could observe at a smaller scale with a child learning to walk or stand up on their own? Uh, yes, but where this gets really interesting is I love watching children develop and I have a nine month old right now and she's already walking. She walked at eight months, which is that is hang on no fair you're the th foot expert you that is to... the worst thing that i've ever heard why because, now you gotta chase them right yeah because dude like <laughs> like when yes. they when they crawl it's fairly easy the minute they start walking you're like and we had twins so it's like you're chasing <laughs> two of them yeah and i remember people like oh my kid walks so early and i remember being like well you're that sucks yeah. for you we we tied our kids <laughs> legs together yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was not in a um i did not accelerate her walking in any way where some mm -hmm. people are like you know, according to DNS, you are not supposed yeah, to. Yeah. And I was like, fuck that. I didn't make my baby walk faster. Like she chooses. Um, but uh, regressing is, or I am regressing. Um, if you look at a baby, you know how they have the Buddha belly? Yeah. And they're like, stomach is pushed out. Mm -hmm. So children don't get the neuromuscular coordination of deep muscles and core stabilizers until they're older. So this uh pathway it's balanced it's is, like yeah it's balanced yes yeah, so it's like a ballast exactly yeah. um and then we don't achieve a proper heel toe gait of ambulation until around three years old some children will do it faster but the neuromuscular coordination of gait you really it it optimizes or peaks around age three which is why I don't give orthotics to children if they ever need them until they are around three or four years old. You're, uh, I, I told you guys when um, I found out I would like my, my first set of kids were twins. And when you find out you have twins, you kind of freak out a little bit. Like now I got to really be on the game. But I remember I reached out to some really switched on people. One of them was uh, Nicholas Romanoff from the Post uh, Method. And, and uh, I asked him, you know, he was a Russian sports scientist and Olympic athlete for the Russians. And I asked him, like, you know, like, what was, was there any development stuff that they did within, like, the Russian villages where you guys were the athletes? And his, re his recommendation was two things, like, um, uh, Americans carry their babies too much. 
So he's like, put the baby on the floor, like just leave it on the floor and let it crawl around and like explore the environment. Don't carry your baby anywhere. Uh, makes it lazy. And then the other one is uh, don't let the kids wear shoes until you're forced to when they go to school. Yes. And so, so like, yeah, we grew up in Southern California. My kids, we didn't even buy them shoes until they were about three or four years old until they actually had to go. And then even then I like found them these like rubbery things that slip on that, you know, and, um, to this day, they still don't wear shoes, no shoes in the house. Uh, they got to go outside and run around. And it was like this, he, he said, he goes, you will stunt the kid's growth. And, uh, then, then of course you start watching people with their kids when they're oh, especially yeah, at yeah. about a year age and they're wearing these like thick soled shoes and you watch Jordan, the, the, Skechers the kids like almost stumble and the feet are behind them and they're trying to like, you know, I mean, they're figuring out proprioception and like they're in, um, um, like perception within the environment. And all of a sudden you're adding like these heavy things to their feet. And it's like, I, I remember watching this in real time versus my kids and thinking like, holy shit, like this is a, this is like an in, uh, like an unintentional parental, um, God, what's the word? Like hobbling of these poor kids just because yeah. people don't know. Right. And the other thing that I would say to that is our nervous system our whole being is about survival. So if you put shoes on your children or anyone for that, for that matter, the nervous system is so intelligent or intelligent to be based around survival that it will find a way for you to move. Is it as optimally? No, but you will find a way and then you adapt to that. And then that is your normal or your baseline even though it really is not the ideal environment that you should be moving or performing in. And that's where, when you look at any research study, particularly around like athletics and athletes is there will always be like a disclaimer or last paragraph at the end that says all of the athletes or subjects after the study wanted to continue training barefoot because now that they like know what they're exposed to, it's like, you don't know what you don't know until you're exposed to it in a sense. I'd like to circle into the orthotics discussion. Texar, did you have something else going on? Um, no, let's hit the orthotics, and yeah. then I can easily come back to the question. So what's uh, are, are they good? Are they bad? Should I be wearing them? Should they be, like, bedazzled? Are they fashion pieces? What's, where are you, what's your position on the orthotics as a barefoot expert? Or give us a little history on, like, you know, like, who was yeah. the first one that figured, hey, you know, we need to start to make something that alters the... I guess, like the bottom and the shape of the, of the foot. So the, the, the short answer is that orthotics, who is it appropriate for and are they good? Are they bad? Is it depends, which is literally with everything, which is what I, I'm constantly trying to post on social media and stuff like that is that it's never a equals B X equals Y, you know, black, white, you know, there's, the human body is way too complicated. So to say that orthotics as a blanket statement are bad, I can't, I can't say that as, as a doctor or to say everyone should be in them is also just, I can't say that either, that it depends on the nature of the foot because podiatrists see the extreme side. I see, you know, fucked up feet, excuse my language, but unless I'm ready, fucked up feet, like the end of the spectrum of where feet have become rigid in their nature or the patient is in such severe pain that you need to really just limit and lock the foot 
because there's so much arthritis that is happening that it's very painful for them, um, where it's either a rigid orthotic or they're fusing every joint in their foot because it's so, so painful. Um, but, you know, on the earlier side of things like children, I actually um, do use orthotics in children in certain cases. And the reason why I like orthotics in children, I'm quoting for anyone who's just listening, um, is that that sets their foundation through which their bones, their nerves, their fascia, everything is established. So if they have a true um, hypermobile foot or a navicular drop or a midfoot pronation, that does need to be controlled because I've seen the three-year-old that looked like that at 18 years old And now they have such severe foot pain when they stand at their first job that they can't work. So I've kind of seen both sides of it. Now to kind of get to the first part of the question of who started this and, you know. um, Doc, you sound like a a marriage counselor, like somebody does, you know, like people don't go to marriage counselors until they've already like had problems and shit's about to end, like going to divorce. It sounds like people don't really come to the podiatrist and come to you until like their foot is like, you know, calcified and locked down in the point where you're like, man, if you'd come and seen me 10 years earlier, we probably could have figured something out. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Which is why I'm a much bigger believer of empowering the public or the mainstream, the consumer, the athlete earlier so that they don't end up like the end of the spectrum. Um, and a lot of my patients that I see, I actually do screens. They actually have no problems, no foot pain, but they're actually coming in enough early enough to say, I just want to stay on top of this. My mom has messed up feet and I don't want to be like that. So look at my foot, do a foot screen and then educate me of what I can do to avoid having those issues of what my mom does or whatnot. Um, What I will tell you, which is the reality of the orthotic business (laughs) in the United States. um, And it's not just Dr. Evil. Kind of like an orthotic (laughs) business. The conspiracy. I mean, some people would say that is, you know, there's a little bit around it. But um, it is about practice management. So podiatrists or any medical professional, you have to think of your money, right? Like, what are your reimbursements? Oh, if I'm making less per patient, I need to look at what is a cash service for a majority of podiatrists orthotics are a cash business. So I can say, oh, I'm going to do charge you or recommend to you a $500 orthotic. Maybe I might charge a little bit more, or maybe you need one for every shoe. Oh my gosh. I see dollar signs now because (laughs) you can't wear the same one in your running shoes as your workout shoes, as your, you know, your work shoes and your ballet flats, right? You need five pairs or something. Um, But the margins on them are very good. So from a practice management perspective, dollar sign. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that everyone needs them? Absolutely not. I spend majority of my time getting patients out of them. And uh, if I do recommend them to patients, I want them to do similar to what, what the podiatrist had told John, is strengthening their foot, releasing their foot, making sure they get sensory stimulation. It's not a one-all fix-all, um, but certain foot types do need them. Or would benefit from them. And when you say as a tool to transition to um, life without them, or is it like a life sentence? Or again, it's probably individualized and depends. Yes. If you have, 
let me give an example. Um, like, let's say if you tore a ligament in the foot or you had a certain injury, uh, you know, Liz Frank. So I'll give that one. With yeah, that no, I, I had a partial Liz Frank. Okay, so that would be yeah. an example of let's say you had a little bit more severe of a Liz Frank injury, which is you destabilize the first ray um, or the first metatarsal for those that don't know the first ray, which means that it can be very painful. Oh, yeah, no, I can co-sign on that one. It's, <laughs> it fucking hurts. It can be very painful to the midfoot or where the arch sits every time you push off because you don't have stability in that joint. Um, that's where orthotics would be this area of pain relief and stability because you just happen to get that injury playing football or soccer or something like that. So that's where you could see it as, yes, a life sentence, but you know, you could still like squat and do things barefoot and, and whatnot. Um, so it's not necessarily a life sentence. If I use orthotics as a transient to get patients out of pain, I use over the counter. I don't charge a patient $500 for something that's going to be temporary to get them out of pain. There's some decent over-the-counter ones that are like 25 bucks. I, I'm not in it to try to make money. Yeah, I, um, I was playing and uh, I was blocking a guy and the, the running back actually, as my foot was up, I was on, like up on my toe pushing. Uh, the running back landed on the back of my foot and I felt like a crunch and I had a partial de uh, tear and it was super painful when I ran. Uh, so on game day, they would just um, get a big syringe full of, um, it was lidocaine and novocaine and every cane they could think of, like short, long, middle, Candy cane. and they would just dump all of this stuff right into the middle of the foot and just numb it up. And I was fine. Then like three or four hours later at the end of the game, like my foot hurt real bad. And that was uh, how they managed it. And I remember them going through and that's how I understood. Like they told me the story of Liz Frank, who was Napoleon's uh, surgeon and they used to amputate the foot. And then they were like, well, good thing you didn't tear completely because they have to go in and pin. And it's, it's a pretty gnarly surgery. So I, mine was a partial. And they just injected it and it healed on its own. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some nasty ones and they're really hard to reduce. Um, I would say one of the nastiest was I did residency in uh, just north of the Bronx in New York. So it's, it was interesting characters. Um, and uh, this guy was doing acid and running away from the police and thought he could fly. So he jumped off this wall. And literally his foot folded in half. So, I mean, oh. some, yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. Lesson learned. Uh, if you're Don't do acid. acid. Just realize you can't fly. Well, it, it, it's the joke from, remember, from Airplane, when she's like, remember, you got a hold of that bad acid and thought you was Jesus Christ and you could fly and you were up on the roof? I guess you guys don't remember Airplane. No, I don't. So you guys I haven't are, watched it enough, man. I know, you guys are too young. <laughs> so we, we make some obscure movie references, but I have to remember these guys are a little younger than me, so... It's hard to have that that joke then. <laughs> yeah, no, it falls on deaf ears. I want to stick with flat feet and then pull in John's experience with the NFL and seeing mo most likely some of the flattest feet and uh, some of the best athletes. Dude, well, let's talk about the guy, or yeah, and then let's talk about we're, our buddy at Fort Bragg. We're in there. But, <laughs> oh, so in terms of athleticism, and you mentioned it earlier here, where people find a way to survive. So are these phenomenal athletes with the flattest of flat feet, just that amazing of an athlete, they found a way to survive without this awesome, st stable tool that is the foot. That's actually how I got into appreciating the neuroscience side of the foot, is that I was seeing a lot of professional athletes with 
very flat feet that if you look at it just from a biomechanical perspective, you'd be like, no way they have to have something with the foot, even like plantar fasciitis or something. And like, nope, 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 nope. High performing, no injury history, either they're an anomaly and they're just riding under the radar or they've trained their nervous system to be that fast and efficient that they've actually uh, kind of superseded or bypassed the typical association of their foot. That's how I look at it. And that's where I started switching to, let's train them barefoot, let's get the intrinsics firing, let's get the feet in the core firing. And I do think that athletes can bypass that. Your, your foot type is not a conclusion to what your potential athletic performance would be. However, at that, I still don't make blanket statements saying your foot type doesn't matter because in some cases it does. So that's, that's where it does get kind of confusing. And I don't like very polar statements, but to understand all of the potential exceptions to a rule, I think is what makes a coach or a trainer the best or the strongest asset in a sense. Well, the, um, uh, just observationally, uh, all the Islander guys that I played with, like the Samoans and the Tongans and anybody that was from some island descent, most of them grew up not wearing shoes until they were in their teens. And uh, a lot of them had really flat feet, like pancakes, like, like they take a walk in the deal. Like, uh, like when I walk uh, in like wet, you know, something wet and I see it on concrete, like a lot of times you can barely see where the foot connects. These guys were like flat pancakes. And, um, you know, and then you're like, well, you know, they don't wear feet. So why are they flat? And I, I thought it, uh, was there, I mean, obviously it's gotta be something genetic or something, you know, something specific to those individuals. Cause they're usually very strong, incredible athletes. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I actually call that a pancake foot. And uh-huh. <laughs> like, I will tell a patient that I'm, I'll say, I don't mean this in a bad way, but you have a pancake foot, which it, a pancake foot is different than a pronated foot. And that's where I think people need to understand, which is why I don't use the words really flat foot, even though I probably did several times in this conversation, but um, flat foot doesn't mean anything. Is the athlete or the individual actually pronating, or let me say over pronating, which is the collapse in, which creates the spiral in, and then the knees become valgus, and then everything is internally rotated and uh, et cetera. You can have literally just a pancake foot, which I see genetically certain uh, uh, nationalities or culture genetically is it's carried. I see that a lot also in Asian cultures and they just have pancake feet. They're not pronating, just flat pancake, no pain, no problems, high performing athletes, but no arch. That's completely different. That we need to understand is uh, most people ask the question, then can I build an arch, right? Like if I strengthen barefoot and I do short foot and I do all this stuff to, to try to strengthen my feet, could I build an arch in my foot one day? If you have a pancake foot, you really can't as much as someone who's pronating because they're slightly different in what's making them flat, I would be able to show you or explain it a little bit easier if I showed you an x-ray and if the bones are actually like parallel to the ground, that's a pancake foot Mm -hmm. versus actually having inclination and declination of bones is what creates an arch 
and then they put their body weight on it and they internally rotate and collapse. Is there a, like, no, not to cut anybody up, but uh, is there like a evolutionary um, reason that that would be the case? Like why some people would evolve to have all the bones flat versus having, I mean, because if you look at the bio, like, I guess you could say like the, like the mechanical advantage of a higher arch is the idea that it acts as a spring, that as you go, it's supposed to be able to, you know, uh, assist in like, you know, spring and explosion and speed. Um, but why would there be like an evolutionary point where now all of a sudden these feet are completely flat like that? You know, I've looked at some research studies as far as um, balance and kind of duration that you can stand in one place based off of different foot types. And you've seen, you can see sometimes a little bit of an advantage in, let's just call it pancake foot, because essentially you just have a higher base. You have more skin to surface contact to which you could hold your body weight. Um, now, does that transfer to actually trying to convert into a rigid lever, which sometimes they have a little bit trouble doing? Um, so I don't know. I don't know if it's continues through certain uh, evolutionary genetics and others kind of bypass it. I do see a difference in um, Africa, which I've, I've traveled all around the world and to over 40 countries and have seen thousands and thousands of foot types. So I see trends in when I was in Africa teaching and seeing trends in the feet. And then those in China, those in India, uh, and then those in like Eastern Europe, you can actually see differences in uh, masses of the, the population. So it's, it's interesting. And then on that dichotomy, let's say we have a, you know, our five listeners listening and their shoes are off and they're looking at their feet and they're going, man, do I have a pancake foot or do I have this pronated foot? Is there a way that an individual could delineate without seeing a podiatrist? Like, do you have any skills or drills they could do and be like, oh, see, record your feet, do this. That means you've got pancake feet, pal. Yes. Um, I actually have the instructions to do that on barefootstrong.com. So yeah drop that. Um, so you can, you can do that. However, the most important thing is you can't like look at your foot. Like everyone will just look at their foot in the chair and be like, no, I have an arch. Okay. You can't tell that, right. You have to look at your foot weight bearing gravity. And then the perspective of how you look at your foot has to be perpendicular. eye level eye view. And I like it from behind versus just in front or the side you can't subjectively be like you have a high arch you have a low arch like what is that based off of like you, you know you're pulling that out of your butt like i don't so if you want to try to uh give your your foot type an assessment set your camera up on the floor put it on just video mode because it's easier just play a video and then make sure that you are standing in front of it um probably like a good four feet or something. So it's getting enough of your foot. You want your heels directly behind your toes. So make sure that your feet are parallel. You don't want to be turned out like a duck. You obviously don't want to be turned in. So heels directly behind the toe. And then your head is straight up. I have people go both feet um, on the ground, head up, looking this way. That's called relaxed position. That's passive. Then I have you stand on one foot that is active. That is actually a glute test. I use that as a glute test with my patients. And then if you're holding on to something, stay on the one leg and do a heel raise, go into your lever. So I'm looking at how you transition through your lever across your met heads. 
and then you come back down, do the same thing on the other side. And that's generally how I do a, a quick foot type assessment. And then what yeah. you would see is as you go into that lever, like I guess calf raise, right? Is it? Yeah, just like a calf raise. Yeah, you would yeah. see, you would notice whether or not you see any sort of pronation in that midfoot above the ankle, right? Is that what you're looking for? Uh, so what I'm looking for when you have two feet on the ground is your it's called relaxed calcaneal position. So your relaxed calcaneal position is your rear foot or your subtalar joint. And it's just saying, okay, is your heel everted or inverted? Is it unlocked? Is it locked? Right. We can go into what those different things mean. Um, technically, if you have a little bit of eversion or unlocked pronated when you stand on two feet, that's actually okay. That's fine. Like that doesn't get me crazy excited. But what you're looking for is when you go from two feet to one foot and you're active and your glutes better be kicking in. If you're slightly everted, do you become neutral? You should be neutral on one leg when you're standing there because that's a glute test. Your glute actually uh, externally rotates your leg and inverts your heel into this neutral position. And then when you go into a heel raise, your heel should actually invert. So I'm looking to see that your heel is inverting and then you are across all five met heads even. You're not kind of obliquing around some of the digits. Usually people go oblique because they can't get through their big toe or they go through their lever, but their rear foot isn't inverting, which means they're actually not creating a spiral, which is the video that you were watching, the NSCA transverse. They're not inverting the heel. So they actually aren't getting um, optimized rotation into the glutes. Sweet. I thought, yeah. we, were, I, I thought we were just blasting calves that whole time, you know, trying to get that <laughs> calf pump going. No. Really, we're doing a bunch of no, footwork. Uh, that's re Two words. So, uh, yeah, like one of our training programs, I got real, like, foot-centric, and I realized that uh, everybody was pretty good within, like, uh, kind of like a movement, like eccentric, concentric kind of deal, mm -hmm. and where all of a sudden started, everything started coming into focus is when we started focusing on different isometric contractions. We're like, you know, hold, asking them to hold that position and bend the knee and then change, you know, or, uh, knee and joint angles to try to challenge the foot. And uh, at that point, like, it was like the shattering of glass. And I was like, wow. Like, uh, you know, people can do calf raises. They can do this. You know, cocky walks, jumps, Maasai jumps. I mean, all the other movements. But all of a sudden, you ask them to, like, you know, hold into a dorsiflex position. And then, you know, uh, you know, do a Bulgarian split squat or come down with weight. All of a sudden, they, like, inability to keep their heel off the ground and control their foot. And uh, right. that was, you know, we started putting that in and selling it as, you know, calf work. But it was really about strengthening the midfoot. Suckers. Yeah. I was like, hey, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give everybody Got jack calves, so we're gonna do all this. They're like, I don't feel like I'm getting a lot of uh, calf work because we're doing all these isometric contractions. I'm like, you guys don't feel it in your calves? Mm. So keep doing it, it'll come. Just yeah, keep on it, I mean, so we were able to to sell people on like a calf program. You know, it's like uh, selling people on like a bicep arm program when actually that like helps their, you know, shoulders and their joints and like bench yeah, pressing. I mean, that's that's sexier than saying, I'm gonna train your rigid lever, like you know earlier when you were saying that you're like oh i like to see it from behind i was like ah there was a lot of sexual you know <laughs> comments on that one too but you use any of my jokes i get a commission on that you know we got to look at you know this is 2020 we got to make sure that we're is now you know, an appropriate time to assess our feet 
So um, there were, someone had like a blue compression, right? Or John knee sleeves, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, for my shins. Okay. I, I deadlifted today and I try to put those things on there so I don't just like rake like, you know, my shins apart. Okay, so on that, looking at the foot from behind, yours I would put as really neutral. Yes. Neutral? Okay. Totally right. average. Average. Sorry, Perfect. Pal. So I'm Thank surprised you. you made it as far as you did in the league. I know. I know. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yes, a higher arch. A higher arch. I see that. Um, and this is looking at just one view. So really right. I see more of the rear foot versus if I had you, you know, from the from uh, a side angle and, and different things like this. So I get more of a snapshot of the of the heel. However, with a higher arch for anyone who's listening, let's say maybe you do the assessment on the barefoot strong um, site and you say, oh, like my heels neutral, but I have these really high arches and things like that. What does it mean? That typically means that a foot is more rigid or has the tendency to be more rigid. So I focus more on mobility work, mobility of the plantar fascia, mobility of the intrinsic. So rolling the bottom of the foot is something that I like to do. Um, the tendency to potentially have a limited ankle dorsiflexion is a little higher in a high arch foot um, because there's certain types of high arches that create what's called pseudo Aquinas. Aquinas is just a clinical term for tight ankles. Um, so that's why I like to screen those athletes. If I see higher arches, they're doing a lot of mobility work, but then also making sure I pre-screen their ankle mobility. And then I pre-screen hip mobility because feet and hips are a lot of times synonymous. People with rigid feet have rigid hips or can tend to be in that association. Mm-hmm. Now, the uh, this is going off of hairiness on the legs. <laughs> Who could that be, McQuilkin? This definitely me. This is the less hairy leg. Less hairy leg. Like a Barbie doll. I mean, Kendall. I want to just tell you the image number. (laughs) Uh, 413. I I don't know who has less hairy legs. That would be me. That's you. If you look at your image that you guys are looking at right now, you are creeping towards what's called quote unquote, too many toes sign. Yeah. Do you see how your toes, you see more toes on there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like your fifth and your fourth on your right foot. Yeah. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that is showing a slight unlocking of the rear foot. Mm-hmm. Again, it's nothing that is um, too exciting. I would never put you in orthotics. Are you bummed? Like, do you want me to? Well, you know, I thought maybe this was the secret. This was what was going on. <laughs> yeah, this, this was your limiting factor. You're like, fine. Your He's like, all you need to do is buy this Dr. Scholl's and you'll be, you know, increase your 40 or reduce your 40 time, increase uh, your foot. You know, I was actually hoping that you had cankles where like this, the tube leg fought, you know, sits right on top of the foot, but you know, you got a little shape in there. I mean, you could say, hey, I have too many toe signs. So yeah, I have that. There you go. I definitely have that. Uh, yeah. Um, but again, it's, so it's slight, slight unlocked rear foot. Now this is looking at everybody statically versus your foot actually moving in. Like I said, even if it's just two feet to one foot to a heel raise, you would actually see the foot changing and moving. Um, that could actually mimic how your foot would move when you're walking or you're jumping or you're running. 
Um, I never do just a static foot assessment. I watch all of my patients walk. I see them do whatever sport it is. So let's say they're a golfer. I want to actually see them do their swing over and over and over. And I'm watching their feet and the way that they're moving. Um, same thing with even just like a squat pattern or step ups and step downs and, and things like that. I try to watch them in their movement or in their sport. Um, uh, the last foot, the hairy foot, is is um, also neutral. So you all guys right. all have, for the most part, just really average, um, average, unremarkable. Yeah, unremarkable. I was going to use the word boring, but <laughs> like there's there's not a lot of pathology there from a biomechanical perspective. From biomechanic, mm -hmm. none of that. It would still say, um, you know. Why, uh, Dr. Emily, do I have plantar fasciitis then, right? Or why did I get a stress fracture? If I have a completely neutral foot, I'm not pronating, et cetera, then I would say it's something sensory or neuromuscular or the timing of how you perceive the ground or the rate at which you're stabilizing, or it could be a top-down issue. Do you have a torn hip labrum? Do you have SI joint issues? Are your glutes not firing fast enough? So then really what's causing your foot issue is the top is not stabilizing fast enough, your center. Um, so every patient I deal with is strengthening the foot. I assess the foot, but I do a lot of assessment in the pelvis as well. I do a lot of pelvic floor work, a lot of TBA work. Um, I actually see a lot of um, patients with athletic pubelgia or groin injuries. And I see a high association between groin injuries uh, hip labral tears and chronic plantar fasciitis or chronic Achilles tendonitis or chronic stress fractures or chronic first radius, whatever in the foot. Um, but the driver is, is actually top down in that case. You know, when I hear music like this, I can't help but think about every cheesy 80s action movie ever. There's just something so great about how clearly fake every fight scene and workout montage is. And what's funny is the approach of creating sexy cut-ups of bullshit workouts with highly questionable application actually exists outside 80s movies and is more prevalent than ever. Well, like terrible 80s movies, there's so much training garbage out there to sort through these days. And while entertaining, it's scary to think that some people are actually falling for it. Think of the pyrotechnics in Commando or the over-the-top use of body oil in the movie Over the Top. Is it possible that they're trying to distract us from the completely unrealistic plotline? Kind of like a sexy-looking program with virtually no performance transfer? This is exactly why Power Athlete has been battling the bullshit for over a decade. The research, testing, and retesting that the coaches at Power Athlete HQ have done to create athletic training programs like Field Strong and Bedrock is unparalleled. We chose to further refine our templates to create Grindstone, Jack Street, Lean Enable, and Hammer because we know that specific goals require specific stimuli. Okay, here's where the shameless plug comes in. A lot of work goes into developing the absolute best program and user experience possible. Just ask our partners at Train Heroic, who have been with us every step of the way and are equally dedicated to empowering your performance as we are. They are relentless when it comes to ensuring that your journey to self-improvement is propelled by the absolute best technology. 
When you join a power athlete program on Train Heroic, the first thing you should do is take a giant sigh of relief, seriously, because now you're in the hands of founder and 10-year NFL veteran John Wellborn and his team of world-class coaches. And for less than a dollar a day, you've just become part of a community of like-minded folks who all want the same thing, performance. And if this whole 80s movie metaphor thing makes no sense to you because you were born after 1990, simply substitute Star Wars Episodes 1 through 3. Who has the time or the patience for an all-show, no-go imposter program? Head to PowerAthleteHQ.com backslash training to empower your performance today. Now back to the show. Uh, uh, Doug, how do you feel about, um, I have a personal hatred of uh, ATC's athletic trainers and, and people that tape ankles because uh-huh. uh, I had to have my ankles taped for every practice, every game. So I used to try to get my ankles taped like three hours ahead of time so that they would loosen up to the point where like I felt like it wasn't a restriction. But these yeah. dudes would like throw these heel locks and this and just like lock that ankle into position. And I remember like, I know you're forcing me to do it. And if I don't do it, I'm going to get in trouble. But this is a terrible practice. Right. The the foot or the subtalar joint, really more specifically, does something like this. Like it's continuously micro-moving, like a, a subtle movement with every step you take. And if you don't get that micro-movement micro in the foot, it's going to go into the knee. So I see a ton of patients with meniscus issues because that tiny movement was being taken out of or locked in the foot because of taping and shoes and orthotics and stuff like that that it had to go somewhere. It has to go somewhere. It literally, that's just how the body works. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people take it out of the knee then. Well, that's, I have knee injuries. I've had five <laughs> surgeries on my right and one on my left. And, uh, but I, 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 and I remember telling them like, um, like I would like, it was funny. I get, uh, if I got taped earlier, I would squirt water and try to like wet the tape down to loosen it up. And yeah. I remember telling them, I'm like, I feel less athletic. I don't feel like I can move as well when my, when my feet are locked. And it was mandated, right? Yeah. We would get in trouble. We'd get fined. And, uh, and especially, like, you could get away with it if you didn't get hurt. But God forbid you sprain your ankle or something happens. <laughs> Fuck. Like, they're going to, like, you know, the fine was just, like, it just well, wasn't worth the fight. You? Yeah. They would, oh, shit. Um, there is a little bit of research around using white athletic tape and what it would do to the proprioceptive system, which is now kinesiology tape. Mm. So that was like their first version. Granted, a lot of them were not using it for proprioceptive skin stimulation. It was more to lock joint movement. Um, But that's where some of the initial research was starting to look at the uh, superficial fascia that like I said, is now kinesiology. Well, uh, you've been talking a lot about fascia, and I remember 20-plus years ago when, um, you know, when I was in college and going through you know, all, the, all the science stuff, like fascia was just the stuff we cut through to get to the muscle. And it's pretty interesting now to see this whole study of fascia come up. And um, through the RPR guys, I read a really cool study where they talked about uh, the emotional intelligence of horses who have really small brains comes from their extensive fascia. And if you look at the human body minus the skin with the fascia, it really only looks like about six muscles the way it's all connected. And what they figured out is that the fascia is this super highway and the connectivity for the communication between the brain the central nervous system and the muscle and so long we've been focused on this structure and muscle and now this like really exciting research about you know fascia which is also kind of cool because it it kind of validates a lot of the acupuncture stuff and like the meridian points and you know it's really kind of pulling it in and um 
Can you talk a little bit about like the fascia, fasciitis, uh, plantar fasciitis and how that fascia within the, in the body really affects all this? Yeah. I mean, anytime I speak about human movement, I do reference fascia. And what I say is that, uh, fascia is an extension of our brain. So was our gut. So technically we have several brains out of our, our central nervous system, but it's an extension of our brain so much so that there's over a hundred million sensory nerves in our fascia, our fascial web. So that's how sensory hungry our fascia is. We use our fascia to really anticipate and navigate human movement. And within our fascia, you have receptors or nerves that are sensitive to vibration, which is ground reaction forces that I referenced earlier. So our ability to really, um, become one with the ground and it sounds like ridiculous. i'll take it i'm in on that uh, it sounds like some hippie bullshit but i i'm, I'm sold you're like believe me you're not gonna argue, i'm not gonna argue with you about it no it's we have to kind of harmonize or find the rhythm with the ground and gravity because that's literally just what everything is um which we do that through our fascial system typically uh, in the bottom of the foot the plantar fascia is just one variation of this larger uh fascial web that we're moving with. It's a, it's thicker. It has, um, similar nerves as our entire fascial web. It still plays a really important sensory role, but I like to think of our plantar fascia as this rubber band that is creating, uh, energy recoil, which I think, uh, you had referenced before how you look at the, the foot, John, um, the, that's the plantar fascia. But what's cool is that your plantar fascia, which starts in the heel, extends towards your toes here. It splits into five pieces and then it blends into the digits, the base of the digit. And then when it hits the ball of the foot, it goes like this and it connects every single metatarsal to each other. And then even further is it kind of spider webs and it connects to your skin. All of that is your plantar fascia. So it connects to the skin in the bottom of the foot, blends into a ligament that connects all of your met heads together, extends into a ligament that stabilizes the MPJs or your lever, and then extends back to your heel, which is the classic plantar fasciitis. Oh, and it blends into your Achilles tendon. How like super complicatingly fascinating cool is that? <laughs> it's just for that to be that uh, critical to human movement. That is referred to as a uh, windless mechanism, reverse windless mechanism, and a tie bar mechanism. All of that is how we stabilize our foot, proprioceptively. Are those mechanisms elsewhere in the body? <laughs> um, or is it unique to the foot? Do you know? Very, very unique to the foot. Um, you might get a little bit of it in the hand, but the, the proprioceptive trigger for stability is very unique to the foot and to the lever. Um, yes, I know we do handstands and there's a lot of stuff with the, with the hands, but it doesn't transmit as much weight as the foot does. And uh, to kind of give an a, example of that is anytime you, you strike the ground, you bring in energy, uh, like running, it's three to four times your body weight. But when you actually take a step, you double it. So you're actually pushing off of when you're in your calf raise position, you have six 
to eight times your body weight in force going through those small bones when you're in a lever. When you're jumping, you have like 20 times your body weight. Is the classic uh, plantar fasciitis, you said it's in the heel? Uh, whenever I saw people tear their plantar fascia, which was a fairly common deal in football, it was always right on the arch, like where like that fascia kind of comes and like stretches over the arch. No, so I see it, it, it depends on how much um, the demand of the elasticity. This is very similar to why you could say how come uh, someone ruptures their Achilles tendon at the insertion where someone else ruptures it in the middle of the tendon. It's really all based around um, the elasticity demand and the stress point during kind of that demand. Um, athletes, because they're on such a high spring mechanism, I see a lot of those injuries more so in the middle of the fascia or in the middle of the Achilles. Um, what I see is if they don't tear their fascia, they actually get a fibroma, which is essentially a mass of scar tissue and it can get quite large in, in individuals that happens because of micro trauma. And instead of you tearing it too much, you do a micro tear and then you trigger abnormal healing and it just becomes literally like a scar tissue or um, accelerated scar growth is what a plantar fibroma would be. I classically see insertional plantar fasciitis or insertional Achilles tendonitis as a contact, like foot contact injury where they're hitting the ground and it's uncontrolled vibration that is causing it more so than the spring mechanism of the tear in the middle of the fascia or the tear in the middle of the tendon. That makes sense. I want to go back to the, the fascial web. So from our experience, this hasn't been a normal part of curriculum. So where are doctors, where are coaches, where are people going to learn about fascia? And do you see this starting to make its way into normal PT or doctors like yourself curriculum? I find that the, the physical therapists, chiros, trainers, coaches that are become a little bit more sophisticated are more in tune with this fascial web concept or fascial concept in general. Um, mainstream, it's not there yet. Where I start to uh, recommend people to go to learn more is, of course, you have Anatomy Trains by Thomas Myers. I look at that as the alphabet. So you want to be able to speak the alphabet, which are the fascial lines. Then to take it a step further, which is the application of the fascia to the sport or to pathology or complex human movement, I look at Robert Schleip's work. Um, S-C-H-L-E-I-P, Robert Schleip, he's um, German, uh, most of his research. And then in the UK, James Earls, I look at his work, he was a body worker um, I also like to read a lot of Ida Rolf's work, or she was a body worker, Rolfing. Oh, yeah. And then um, I also uh, like, I mean, those are some of the main uh, ones. There's a fascial congress that they just had. Um, every couple of years, they have a world fascial congress. Um, I think that it is critical to integrate fascia. My current interest in fascia is actually in interoception, 
which is a different side of fascia. It's interoception is our internal balance and our internal um, homeostasis, which connects to the autonomic nervous system and heart rate variability. And am I stressed or not stressed? Am I in survival? All of that breathing patterns, um, emotional regulation, mindfulness. And there's a lot of research in athletics and performance. And the more interoceptively in tune athletes are, they can detect the subtleties within their internal environment, meaning uh, I feel my heart rate rising or something. And they can perceive it faster than someone who is not connected to their body and they can mentally override it and control their breathing, their heart rate. And then that actually connects to their mental processing and their ability to do um, executive function on the field. This is like, you know, wow. next level shit. That is really the way that I think uh, the body and athletic performance is going. Is it, and that's, that would be trainable. It's through, it's through mindfulness. So when you look at the research and if you want any of this, like just ask me and I'll send you um, a ton of it is you do it through mindfulness and there's uh, it's a meditation. It's, but it's not just sitting there meditating. It's understanding higher principles of um, that go beyond ego. So there's some people who this is not going to work for because you have to be ready to kind of go into this stuff. When the student's ready, the master appears. Yes, exactly. Right. So um, understanding, you know, acceptance of self, um, uh, the breath work, the power of the breath work, how you really are in control of your breathing. Um, Wim Hof. So a lot of like Wim Hof's work is interoceptively connected, whether he uses those words or not, that's ultimately what people are doing is they are controlling their autonomic nervous system. They're bringing consciousness to a system that is normally thought of as subconscious. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Douglas Peel or is it, is it Douglas um, Peel from uh, Be Activate? No, but I need to look that up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you look up like Be Activate, uh, that's the, the system that the RPR was built off of the uh, restorative posture reset. So okay. the idea that um, that dysfunction is for is uh, stored in the fascia, and that mm-hmm. if you can go through and actually do some releasing of that fascia, which is kind of interesting. Like if you've done the raw thing and you've kind of looked at like myofascial release, uh, but the idea that there's actually like a, uh, I guess you could say like different zones and patterns that you have to work through within the cycle in terms of releasing that fascia, and so yeah, um, it, really really fascinating. I want to say the guy's from South Africa. Uh, I was hoping to try to go meet him next month, but. This uh, thanks, Rona, Corona. And just point, quick point of clarification: the RPR is reflexive performance reset. So if oh, you were going to do do a, a Google to try to find it, reflexive yeah. performance reset. And the gentleman is Douglas Heel, H E E L. Yes, I, I have heard of him. Um, and yeah, so probably what he's doing. I'm going to look at it, um, and I'm sure that this is what I'm thinking. Is that um, there's emotional connections to uh, everything and we harness them in the body somewhere. And then if you release them, um, if it is the one that I'm thinking of, it can be quite profound. Like sometimes people have to be ready for um, uh, like a life like, change. 
Yeah. yeah, like they might like there could be an emotional release when you're releasing the fascia or getting body work done um, that is just seemingly more orthopedic in a sense. And they don't realize that it's going to bring up all of this like emotional stuff. Um, but that's that's where when you look at fascia, the interoceptors, which I don't know if you guys have heard of that term before. No, first time for me. OK, so interoception or interoceptors are sensory nerves that are found within your visceral fascia. So it's very specific to like gut fascia, gut lining, um, and how our body uses that sensory perception to maintain homeostasis of heart rate and um, breathing and that baseline of survival. Um, but there's a ratio of one to seven of nerves in your fascia. So for every motor nerve, somatosensory nerve in your fascia, there's seven interoceptors, which have an emotional purpose. So I give lectures at conferences around interoception is something I speak about a lot. And I say that it's the emotional side of fascial fitness, because your fascia that Thomas Myers and everyone speaks about from a athletic perspective is actually way more emotional. And that our emotion literally is the foundation to everything else. Because if your mind is not right, I mean, you could just apply it that way. If your mind's not right, you're not going to be successful or you're not going to be a good athlete. If you keep psyching yourself out or you get stress takes over you before a game, you're not going to be a good athlete because performance is all about the mental side is way more than the actual physical side. All right. Um, Doc, are you familiar with the terms internal cueing and external cueing as it relates mm -hmm. to like teaching movement? So recently... It, over the past year, we've talked to some, some researchers and practitioners who are focusing strongly on the external cueing. Is, is interoception and external cueing connected in a sense? Uh, yes, so you could use that. And then you probably will see with some of your athletes that you can use certain cues with some and they connect to it more than others. That most likely has to do with their baseline of interoception or what's called actually interoceptive awareness. So everyone has a different level of interoceptive accuracy, interoceptive sensitivity and interoceptive awareness. The easiest way that you can determine this is that it's called heartbeat tracking. So you would essentially just sit in the chair like you are, or you can go on your back, whatever, shut your eyes and you sense how many heartbeats you feel and you count them so I would say, okay, count for 15 seconds. And I would have you sitting there, your eyes are shut, your palms are up, so you don't feel your thumb pulse. And you count how many heartbeats you feel. And then I would have you actually feel your radial pulse next to your thumb and count your actual heartbeat, right? Or your pulse. And then you compare them. That sets the baseline of interoceptive accuracy or perception. Wild. Yeah, so you can see that um, some people, some of your athletes might be like, my what? Like, how the <laughs> hell am I going to feel my heartbeat if I'm like not touching my pulse, right? That would be someone with a lower interoceptive awareness or internal mind-body connection, whereas one is just like, oh, yes, I feel like, you know, they just feel everything within them. Um, there's something that's called alexthemia. Alexthemia, it's people who can't describe their emotions well. So they're just like, I love you. Like they just, you know, they, <laughs> like, I'm thinking of intern. You know. <laughs> yeah. More, yeah. yeah, we had, we had an intern, the, 
former intern. He's since left us on his own accord without even telling us. And, uh, we, you know, that was, that was it. Hey, how'd the training go today? Good. How are you feeling today? Good. Oh, man, you cut your leg off. How, you, how does that feel? Good. Like, good. <laughs> good. Good. How's that taste? Good. You're what, eating dog what, poo. It's what good. Music. What music are you listening to? I don't know. Good. <laughs> I don't know. Is it good? Yes. And uh, we were working with him, and by we, Tex really took the lead on this because I think you have a, an appreciation for it. We're just like, hey, he, here's, here's a word bank. Your challenge today is to use a word other than good, right? Green green means positive, red means negative. Select a word and tell us. And it good. worked for like a week, you know, but it, it never stuck with the kid. And he's a young guy, you yeah, know. He's, and he, yeah, he's so young. he's not that young. Well, 19. <laughs> 19. 19's young. I mean, there's I feel like ni- that that age from so, like 18 to 24, yeah. you can have people who are really high functioning and capable in that age group. And then you can have just... But we're not full-grown adults until we're 25, 26 years old when the brain continue, finishes growing and it hardens. Mm-hmm. So up until that point, I pretty much you assume get, get everybody's a, margin, a moron. Margin of error. Can't we increase their ceiling of that hardened 25-year-old brain by... Interioception. Awareness. Yes, mindfulness, which is what, which is what you would do. Mm-hmm. But what he had, without ever meeting him or seeing him, <laughs> is what's called alexemia, which is it's a clinical... Um, term for people who don't connect well to emotions typically they then have um from an athletic perspective perspective is they would have less exteroception so interoception the more i can perceive my body internally i also have this perception externally right so i could i know my postural awareness i know the accuracy of my movement um you know, for certain sports, like I was a gymnast. So you have to have very high internal and external body awareness because you're navigating uh, static objects and you're the moving piece. Um, So certain sports favor it. And I think foster those areas where others may not, but when you do foster them, you create a very powerful um, advantage and uh, ball sports, there's a lot of research around ball sports or opponent sports like football, soccer, basketball, and the critical importance of interoceptive awareness because the executive function in those sports is very high because you're navigating many things at once. And then is that is that awareness, is it a systemic deal? Or is there is it possible that an athlete would have a high level of interoceptive, I think I'm saying it right, awareness, yep. let's say on the anterior versus posterior or upper body versus lower body, or does that make sense where I'm going with this? Is it regional? Is it systemic? It's, it's more, uh, so interoception is more like, uh, it's just trunk. trunk. Okay. Trunk. Yeah. So more viscera, although there are interoceptors in, um, skin, which is how you're able to connect, uh, movement to interoception. Classically, it was referred to more as like visceroceptors, so the nerves of your gut. Um, but yeah, you you definitely can train those. The best way to train it is through mindfulness and breath work. Mm-hmm. Um, that assessment of heartbeat tracking is the exercise in itself. So it could be like, oh, when you lay down and before you go to bed, just try to count your heartbeat or listen to your heartbeat. Or like you could build it in that way, mm-hmm. um, or have meditation, yoga, tai chi. You know, those all uh, help to connect. I feel even a form of um, foam rolling and body work could do it. You just have to kind of reflect in. Um, and it's, 
where I hope uh, performance and performance training goes because you see it uh, with uh, Dr. Zanis and his shooting athletes. So uh, I read a research article around interoception and shooters like Olympic level shooters actually have some of the highest of any athletes because when you shoot, you actually shoot between your breasts and that's how you find the stability. Um, and a lot of that, um, I uh, used to date a FBI SWAT. He was a sniper for the SWAT. And so he would give me all of his like low down information on how they create their accuracy. They have very high interoceptive awareness because one, they have to control their emotions when they're doing some sort of mission. And then the timing of when they actually shoot the rifle is between the breath because every time you breathe, you move, right? So they have to be able to time even almost between like a heartbeat is where they would shoot. Um, so it's really interesting of, of that if you within your own practice, see if you can connect or see trends with even former military and then athletes or athletes of a certain type and their interoceptive awareness. Um, this is awesome. Hey, uh, I want to take it back and like something that's kind of near and dear to our heart recently is uh, the idea of like um, preventing ACL tears. Mm -hmm. So um, ACL uh, injury can be, you know, derail a very successful athlete and put them into a position where, you know, obviously less successful. Can you um, discuss any research or information that you have that might be justification for like training the foot as a mechanism for protecting the ACL? Yes. So I use, um, this goes back to foot core connections, right? And literally everything is a timing. So when I see a, a patient or an athlete, whether they're trying to prevent an ACL injury, they're showing trends towards being high risk of an ACL injury or their status post uh, ACL reconstruction, then the, the prevention or the uh, rehab side of it is creating the coordination between the foot and core because the knee stabilizes based off of how the feet and the hips stabilize. So if you can get the foot and the core to stabilize faster, then the knee will stabilize faster as well. And it's based off of fascia lines, which is what, what I use those connections because fascia is fast. So if you're stabilizing via fascia lines, the timing you stabilize will just be much faster. Um, I wish I had like a diagram or something to show you, but there's actual fascia lines that cross and connect to each other in the bottom of the foot. Um, are you guys familiar with the deep front line? En enlighten us. Okay. I might know what it is, but maybe your listeners don't. <laughs> okay. So there is a fascia line, which is just interconnecting muscles from the bottom of your foot uh, through your lower leg into your adductor, into the pelvic floor, and then into the diaphragm. So you, it's how you truly connect your feet and your core is via this fascial line, which means foot core stability should be fast, fascial. It's a fascial connection. Now on the bottom of the foot, uh, one of the muscles that inserts and becomes part of your deep front line is what's called your posterior tibialis. I'm sure you've heard of it. Maybe the listeners have heard of it. It's a muscle in the foot that stabilizes the arch. It's the most important stabilizer of your arch. Um, it's what you engage when you become a rigid lever. So when you do the calf raise position, when you do a calf raise is actually not a calf exercise. It's a posterior tibialis exercise. It's the primary muscle that is actually doing that action. 
your posterior tibialis inserts onto another tendon that's called your peroneus longus. They literally insert onto each other on the bottom of the foot. And then your perineals blend into your IT band all the way into your hips. So if you have the muscle that stabilizes your feet and core inserting on the muscle that becomes your lateral line, that's gonna, they're going to almost co-contract when you are doing dynamic movement. So you can get faster knee stability if you train foot to core sequencing. I hope that was not confusing. I think I'm going to have to replay it a couple times, but the good news is this thing's going to live on the internet forever. So people will be able to take notes and we'll warn them. But that is long story short is it's a pretty, it's connected system and you need to dial in your feet. If you really want to protect that ACL and your well, livelihood. It, uh, <clears throat> through this whole conversation, the one thing that keeps sticking out to me is like there's a, a level of strength and flexibility, but it's like that task-specific tension, which is really like task-specific, like rigidity that, um, you know, you, your foot has to be somewhat mobile and strong and all the other key factors, but then like as it lands and it like under force or under load or when it strikes something, it has to be able to turn on like a you know, strong amount of rigidity and then relax again. I mean, the same thing happens within the trunk, like as you're moving and, you know, you're looking for trunk stability, that idea of being flexible within the trunk, but then being like really rigid. And it comes down like um, the analogy I think about is like a boxer, for example, as he's throwing his punch, his hand is extremely loose. And then upon uh, it like strikes and as, as it strikes the opponent, it becomes this you know, rigid piece of iron, and then he draws it back and it's flexible again. So the ability to like fire the, you know, whether it's the fascia, the motor or central nervous system or whatever it is, that, that uh, ability to go from like flexible and fast to rigid and then back, like that's the stuff that blows my fucking mind and mm -hmm. sparred my language. But like as we're getting through this thing, I mean, whether it be running, moving, rotation, all this other stuff, it seems that like maybe a differentiating factor for athletes in terms of those that are successful and those that aren't maybe comes down to your ability to create that rigidity faster and more efficiently than others. I, I'm actually so glad that you said that because I, I try to spend a lot of my time saying that the foot is designed to be stiff because everyone is like, no, the foot needs to be mobile, mobilize it, free it, get it out of the shoes, freedom, mobile. Like it's like all about this like dexterity of the foot. I'm like, no, no, like, yes, but mm -hmm. as John was saying, it has to still be stable and stiffness or rigidity, right? Rigid, stiff equals stable, but it's not just is my foot stiff, it's the rate and the timing at which it is able to create that stiffness. So it's a very rapid stiffness through isometric contractions that are anticipatory before your foot hits the ground. That's how your foot is a high performing foot. That is all based off of sensory science, neuroscience, fascial science. Boom. I got a couple more questions. Are, you got some too as well, Tex? On this note, Go. I've experienced some through one of my old coaches and John's coaches, Raf Ruiz, something that he referred to as a feed forward loop. And an example of this for our listeners, it's like we're walking on a, a sidewalk, we got our eyes up or we're talking to somebody and there's like that crack and that break in the concrete. And you have that one instant instant where you lose completely lose balance. That's an example of like a feed forward loop. And so we would do different drills and just situations, whether it was in a pool or outside of a pool and change of direction stuff to cool and test 
our athletic ability and our feed forward loops for particular movements. And it sounds like there's some pieces and components here that we can deep dive, but an application and training. And they mentioned in science and practice as well, but just an observation. And you mentioned dexterity, uh, Doc, and I'm thinking of, you know, there's these, these stories, I guess, traumatic stories of individuals who may lose use of their hands or arms at a young age, but then they build this amazing dexterity of, with their feet, and they're able to, like, use like play cutlery, the play the My guitar. My Left Foot. Remember, like, the movie, the movie My Left Foot? That actually was an Oscar-winning movie, remember, where the guy... Uh, I have not seen this movie. You've never seen My Left Foot? <laughs> on, man, no. Oh, okay, I'm not even going to spoil it for you. All right, a new John Wellborn. Perfect, yeah. oh, now wow. I can see it without it being spoiled. <laughs> yeah. But are we, like... The foot has the potential for this amazing dexterity, I think has been proven. Is that, number one, is that individualized? Maybe, right? Number two would then be, are we doing ourselves a disservice by not using, learning to use our feet to eat food and play the guitar? Okay, so uh, (laughs) one, I would say that that goes back to showing the power of the nervous system Mm -hmm. and that it wants to survive. It will find a way. Um, is what I think that that demonstrates. Do, do I think that we should then in school learn to write our name with our feet? No. What? <laughs> I was waiting for a yes. Wait, I'm not well, going to lie. Um, She's sorry, signing off well, at home. Well, but uh, the, the, the interesting thing, and you brought this up, was the idea that like, you know, uh, like the difference with the primates is like the, bipo- uh, the opposable thumbs. Yeah. You know, that they have opposable thumbs on their feet, but not necessarily on their hands. You know, and then the ability to grasp. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, the opposable thumb thing, like, just from an evolutionary standpoint to go from, like, having an opposable thumb to, like, that toe, that forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. like, there would have to be a specific reason, like, that that happens. Like, and I think it goes back to the idea of, like, um, um, I don't know if you've ever looked at, like, any of the Andy and Artie uh, stuff, like, out of Africa. Like, so I was at Berkeley when all that, like, the Berkeley people went and discovered all that. And I remember seeing it in, like, the Daily Cal. And then it was, like... 15 years later, finally, they like got all the information and put it out in that like amazing documentary they did. But they talked about like, uh, you know, the idea was that like, why did the, why did the primates stand up? Like, why did they go bipedal? And the Mm -hmm. idea was that, um, they got out of the forest and they did it to look for danger. Mm -hmm. But then all the fossils that they found, there was uh, fruit bat droppings that were of the same age. So then they figured like, okay, there was a, 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 for, or a forest or some form of jungle here. So why did they stand up? And uh, like, that was like, you know, was it to like reach and pick something up? Was it to carry young? Like, what did it look like? And like, it's just so, so it's just so inspiring to think that like, here are these major evolutionary changes that like have completely sh- shaped an entire species based off of these small things that one group of yeah, individuals just, decided mm-hmm. to, whether it was, you know, voluntary, environmental, whatever it looked like, that now all of a sudden we go from having, you know, an opposable thumb on our foot to actually a foot forward with a metatarsal in the same way. It just blows which, my mind. Which favors bipedalism and to be bipedal you need that rigid lever like you need a plantigrade foot is what our foot is called it's called plantigrade um if you look at a primate foot versus a human foot we have almost all of the same muscles um the one muscle that changed is uh the muscle is called the flexor hallucis brevis is which is what your sesamoids sit in i don't know if you it's your sesamoids are underneath your your first met head like your kneecap they're a lever they're lever bones they're floating bones 
Um, primates have sesamoids. We have sesamoids under our big toe, but we have an extra belly to that muscle mm. to stabilize our big toe so that we can push off straight. Mm. So we have an extra muscle from a primate. Um, and then you can actually see a rotation of the peroneus longus muscle as we became bipedal that is different than a primate. Other than that, all the bones and the muscles are the same. So it, well, the, um, the and, and I've, I've deep dived into these arguments of like why, and it really comes down to the idea that um, in terms of like, if you think about inter- like humans within the realm of the animals, we basically are like the least durable of all of them. Like we don't have fur, we don't have claws, we don't have sharp teeth. We're like weaker, we're sensitive, but, emotional, well, but, irrational. But, but that's actually the. Not all um, of us. <laughs> That's the strength is the ability to reason and think, but also yeah. we have the ability to last and have like incredible endurance. So like uh, the way that they hunted was they would just follow things until they tire felt yeah, tire them out. But like yeah. the ability to go 30, 50 miles, like mm-hmm. there's no other species on the planet dogs, right? that has that. Uh, but dogs have to pant. Mm-hmm. So uh, the panting is like if they can't pant, then they overheat. Like we're, we're able to do it without panting. So that it comes out yeah, of our sweat. skin. But like that idea of, um, uh, you know, you think about it like that ability to go and just continue to go is probably fits within that task specific rigidity and yeah, that, you rigid know, lever. yeah, that rigid lever. Yes. And movement efficiency mm-hmm. of actually bringing in the potential energy of ground reaction forces and storing it and recoiling it like a rubber band. And and that harnessing of of movement efficiency is kind of supported of what what you're saying. Um there, I haven't seen, and I've asked a lot of, like I've asked Robert Schleip, James, or a lot of these top fascial researchers, if anyone has done comparative fascial line studies of a primate versus a human. Hasn't been done yet, probably mm. can't get it funded. I don't know. Um, maybe people aren't interested in it. I would be fascinated to see if there's fascial line differences that support bipedalism as well, and to see some of the changes. Um, the nerves, sensory nerves have changed of the plantar foot versus the palmar foot of a primate. You can actually see research around that, which again supports bipedalism. And then all of these changes in the brain really parallel when we were bipedal. So us walking fed an increased cerebral blood flow. And because we had more cerebral blood flow, our brain become, became bigger. So we were able to kind of have higher processing at the same time as bipedalism, um, which is where I speak a lot on uh, neurodegeneration and neuroprotective. A big part of neuroprotection is you have to maintain what fed it in the first place, which is walking or bipedalism and sensory. Well, then also... Um... You know, they also looked at like the, uh, and we had Tara Sword on talking about, you know, like the cooking of proteins and the idea of uh, EPA and protein, you know, growing, not only shrinking the stomach, which allowed the brain to grow because there wasn't, you know, as much, uh, you know, blood diverted. So, I mean, all, all these things are super fascinating. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the other one, too, is, um, uh, and Tex and I actually discussed this today because it was funny the other day, there was a, a big snake in our office. Um, they, like, we live out here in rural Texas. And uh, what you're seeing here is uh, is actually a barn that we converted into an office space. And this was a tack room that's our, now our podcast room. But because we're still out in rural Texas, there's a lot of rural Texan things like Tex opens the door and there's a big rat snake climbing the wall. And uh, so he like kind of, you know, sends me a picture. But and it was a barn door like half open. 
So right over the top, this thing just pokes its head, and I observe at the corner of my eye, and it but, was a freaking large snake. So they, we, we have these Phoebes and these little birds that like uh, do all their nesting in the spring, and that's where they raise their young, and then what the snakes have learned to do is climb to get into their nests. And uh, I've, I've like come out and seen snakes in nests and being like, there's no, like I can't figure out how the snake got there. Like they would have had to scale a wall, come, I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible to see. But I, um, the comment I, I said to text is like, can you imagine uh, an organism that doesn't necessarily think that's purely driven off of uh, like, well, food, but more like uh, the skill, like, like nobody taught it to do it. It's not like mama snake showed him how to do it. Like that's something within it, like the instinct, the inheritance to know that I have to get up there and I can do this. And, you know, uh, we have our neighbors horses and they turn them out in their pasture. And I think they're really interesting too, because we had a huge storm the other day. And like, as soon as like I saw in the weather report, all of a sudden the, the horses got real antsy and they all took off and I knew that it was going to be a big storm. So like they have this like inherent, uh, whether it's within the fashion, that was what I was talking about with horses being s- extremely small brained, but highly emotionally intelligent because of how complex their fascia is. And, and so I was wondering, like, you know, with that Douglas um, heel stuff, the idea of like storing dysfunction and emotion and like almost like a memories within the fascia. I wonder if and this is probably a huge leap, but like, you know, these animals almost maybe to store something within the genetics or within like, you know, ancestral into the fascia that allows them to have this. The skills. Yeah, like the skills like they're born with. Yeah, to pass them along. Oh, yeah, 100%. Well, so there's a book that's called Beyond Biomechanics. And the reason I know it is because I was going to write my book as that title, <laughs> but there's another <laughs> book that's called it. So I can't, um, but it's, so if you look on Amazon beyond biomechanics, and then it's something about fascia, but it's actually about horses. So it's written by, uh, someone who does, I think horse therapy or something like that, almost like a body worker for horses. And my cousin, uh, just randomly is a mas- she went to massage therapy school and she learned to do it for horses um, being from North Dakota that that's kind of where where her passion was and I think a lot of that also connects to the the fascia the emotion I mean people say a lot about horses and they can read people and personalities yeah. uh, similar if you're interested just down that rabbit hole is you would want to look up um, the part of the brain that's connected to in, uh, to interoception and emotion through fascia is your insular cortex. So you can see that certain animals have higher uh, anterior insular cortex activation or um, just activity as a baseline, and that's the emotional center of their of their being. Wow. Yeah. No. It's um. It it's pretty interesting. Just the uh. You know. And I sometimes wonder. If because the way that our brain evolves and the way we learn and like this idea of like, the, you know, the constant search for knowledge that like uh, it's somehow blocked us off to maybe something that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to say through like your ancestors, but like this kind of idea of like, hey, like there's this uh, inherent knowledge that's been collected over generation to generation that we can't necessarily access. Well, Jordan, oh, yeah. Peter, Jordan Peterson speaks on that. A lot, and that's the importance of taking chances in terms of uh, doing stand-up, public speaking, or any risky things that you maybe have an inclination for. But it's the matter of taking that chance and believes that those certain skills or attributes that make you good at said skill they are within us. And he says, just take 
take those chances so you can have that self-discovery. Yeah, I think that that's very cool. And then it, um, other um, authors that you might want to look at is Dr. Gabor Matei. I literally am just like a library. <laughs> no, I appreciate you recalling these yeah. names. <laughs> but uh, Dr. Gabor Matei speaks a lot on um, kind of the multi-generational side of emotion and trauma. But I think the other side of it could be certain skill sets or behaviors or patterns towards, um, uh, I don't know, autonomic nervous system regulation or, you know, because it's like your outlook technically regulates everything, your perception, the lens through which you look at things. And a lot of that is uh, multi-generational and it passes through generation to generation to generation of um in this case, it's trauma or it's emotional connections, but that ultimately influences interoception and the lens through which you look at things. Um, and from an athletic pers performance perspective, it could be why is this certain athlete who's super highly talented uh, continuously redshirting or something like that because of certain injuries that they get? A lot of that starts to become almost... Um, not psychosomatic, but kind of in the direction of psychosomatic, that their stress levels are actually increasing their injury rate and increasing their inflammation, which makes them get injured easier. I guess as we're, you got one text? I got a quick one. Go for it. For you, Emily. So we've had this discussion a lot, and I know John's got an idea on this, but do you have, as a gymnast, and now a daughter, an athlete blueprint plan. Are you going to uh, set her up with swimming into gymnastics, into field sports? What's your plan? Uh, yes, a hundred percent. So me. So I am already, uh, I told you that my daughter who's nine months is walking already. Um, I have her hanging on a bar already. I have her walking on her hand. Obviously I'm holding her. Um, she's walking on her hands. I put her upside down continuously. I flip her around um, because yes, I have a athletic plan that that girl well, develops the inner ear. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like the changes in orientation actually develop the inner ear and develop balance faster. That's why you take your kids and you hold them upside down and spin them around. Yep. yep. So that, that's why I'm doing that um, to get her used to being uh, uh, used to being in space and having as high body awareness as she can, knowing that at the same time it drives cognitive enhancement. So let's say she'll be, you know, straight A in school. No pressure here. Jeez. Well, um, they, uh, <laughs> there's a there's a cool book, and I actually did a speaking engagement years ago, and I think it was like the name of the book is like the world, like uh, the most intelligent baby, or I, I forgot what it was, but it was these guys, and they basically this doctor who was pretty switched on dude, made the observation that there's a direct correlation between physical intelligence and emotional, or sorry, physical uh, intelligence and like mental intelligence are like paralleled up until about the age of six or seven. And then after that, you start to see a deviation. But like the more, the better, the more efficient the movement and the better the mover the kid, the smarter they are. And then at some point there's a deviation, but that sit, like that initial six years of movement, if like you're not forcing these kids into 
my deal had to be something that uh, involved different orientations. Like my girls did gymnastics, something that was a different environment like swimming, uh, mm-hmm. something that involved some form of sliding. So they learned balance and space like uh, skateboarding, uh, sco- uh, you know, skateboarding, uh, skating or, you know, anything that looks like that. And then uh, obviously something that looks like a ball sport where they have to like be able to catch and judge space and then, you know, move in space with another one. But yeah, we had a, like we would do the hand walking where I'd hold their legs and teach them to walk with hands and then forward roll. And um, Mm -hmm. it's, uh, and then the other one too, is they get to a point and I'm sure you'll see this, like my little girls are eight is um, you get to the point where you just provide the environment and then you sit back and you watch how they create this stuff. So we have a huge gym and like, there's all this weird stuff. And like, I'm amazed of the things that they pull out to play with, like their deal right now is um, high jumps. Mm-hmm. So they're like setting up these bars, trying to figure out how high they can jump, two-footed, one-footed, if they can jump off of this. And like I just, I get so excited by seeing what I call uh, athletic creativity or more importantly like athletic problem solving where I set up problems like, and we, we did this as kids, like, hey, I'm going to climb that tree or that fence. How do I get up there? Uh, which I think sometimes doesn't happen in sport the same way, whereas like now you're within nature and you're within space trying to solve these athletic problems. And I think that athletic intelligence is like some form of you know cognitive development that helps these kids be smarter. So it sounds like you got a system with the, the tumbling and spatial orientation. What else is on the docket? We know what John's going to be doing here and has been done, but what do you got going on? With my kids? Yeah, like what's the plan, the roadmap? Um, well, yeah, so... Uh, what I do think is that the parents, it's the parents' responsibility to lay the opportunity for body awareness and motor development uh, where in, in every facet so that that allows them that um, development later in life where I've seen, I I taught fitness for 20 years and I would be teaching some classes and you can tell the people that never played a sport, um, didn't have anything like, you know, no coordination. You see them on the dance floor and you're like, oh my God, like this, really. So I, I, there's a benefit to every individual to have heightened body awareness from a coordination perspective, but also um, the opportunity to explore where their talent is and that translates to anything when she moves forward, just how she carries her body, her confidence of how she will feel when she's carrying her body a certain way because she has increased body awareness because I laid that foundation for her. I put her in swimming and I put her in um, uh, gymnastics or martial arts or whatever it is for that self-exploration. Um, one of my biggest uh, regrets, or I hope it's one of my parents' biggest regrets is I'm from North Dakota landlocked state they did not put us in swimming so i am almost 40 years old and i am so scared of water no i know i know it's really bad when you go to like holiday and you're like oh oh, i get it we've always had a pool and I, i got my little girls in the pool and my son too and then uh we have something that i call drown proofing where I, where I make them swim around on top and I actually go into the water and I yank their legs down and teach them to like how to like, oh, it's, it's, it's our game. And the hilarious part is I play it like now, now they try to do it to me. But uh, that level, like I grew up in Southern California, like we grew up in a pool, and went to the beach all the time. So like that level of comfort in the water is uh, like knowing that you'll probably not make that mistake with your daughter. You're like, when can I take her to like the baby swim classes? One, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, go exactly. ahead, Doc. Yeah, I, I definitely want my daughter to know how to swim, uh, but also what it does for like breathing. You know what I mean? Just like I want her to 
uh, try to play a musical instrument, maybe a wind instrument so she can get used to the breathing so that when she's older, like all these things lay our foundation that we don't realize. My behavior and uh, like discipline and structure and the way I am is very much like a gymnast. Like gymnastics of certain sports have just different levels of like self-discipline and structure and like all of that stuff that it will shape them, her or your children literally for the rest of their life. And I feel that those are habits that it's our parental responsibility to do that. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that we have those um, opportunities. Like we have gymnastic schools or we have all the creativity things that we can put her into. Um, But even if we didn't, I would probably do what John it doesn't just have something and say, you figure it out. Like, yeah. Well, uh, the one thing w- which was really observant for me is, um, I can spot when a girl was a gymnast, like I knew my wife was a gymnast, like she's 40 years old and you can still see not only the way she stands and moves like, yeah. uh, like, you know, we own, I owned a commercial gym and, um, for a number of years. I mean, and we've taught hundreds of seminars around the globe to thousands of people. And if a girl walks in, I can tell exactly by the way she walks and how she stands and how she moves. If she was a gymnast at a young age, and then you run into girls like, Oh, I, I competed in college or I was a level 10 gymnast, just their mm-hmm. ability to put or to, uh, um, learn new things and execute is such a higher level to the point where you're like, were you a gymnast? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, for my little girls, the same thing. I mean, I put them, I remember, um, when we were in Southern California, we're in Texas now, uh, Azarian, who I think he won a gold in like 56, he had that factory down in Southern California. And I would drive, you know, 30 minutes to take my girls there because it was the best. And uh, it was just amazing to see like the carbon copies of the girls at like five, six, seven, 10, 13 years old, like, like not only how they moved in this and the training and uh, seeing the girls that were at like 14, 15, or maybe even younger, like 12 or 13 that were trying to, you know, prep for the Olympics, mm-hmm. like four or five hours in the gym, six hours in the gym. Like, I just remembered being like, this is insane. The, the mm-hmm. volume of work, like, like the, uh, the metabolic pathways and the development that they're creating at this young age will like alter the trajectory of their lives, you know, for the rest of their lives, just based off of the physical exertion. Yeah. I mean, I was training four hours after school at 10 years old. I mean, that's oh, wow. it's crazy for that. And then you also learn like winning, losing. So there's kind of that, like the stress of a competition. So you kind of, maybe grow up faster in certain ways, whether that's good or not. But um, I used to coach gymnastics when I was 20, 21. And I remember there was this little girl, she was maybe four, three, four, five, something like that. And she like, she had like six pack at four years old or something like that. But she would just like on the bar, she was just like, oh, she had it. And I remember going to her mom and I was like, you have to keep this girl in gymnastics. Like <laughs> from a gymnast, I'm like, that is such raw talent that she was born to be a gymnast. It is in her like physiology. And like, I'm, I'm curious if today, if she ever did. Whereas I used to train um, uh, McEnroe, who's a tennis player. Uh, yeah, John, John McEnroe. John McEnroe. Yeah, John McEnroe. Yeah, his daughter, I used to train his daughter in gymnastics and um, didn't have the raw talent of this other girl, right? But he was so sad of like, you are gonna be a gymnast. And she didn't have kind of that that raw physiological skill for the sport similar to this other one and it's kind of like trying to put like a square peg in a round hole or Mm -hmm. something like that like you can't you don't want to fight a sport like gymnastics because then it it creates a lot of fear in the children they can get hurt and it's not fun then yeah yeah Yeah, no but i mean not, not everybody's wired up the same way to do the same stuff 
And, exactly. and, you know, like, um, like my favorite example was, uh, like the wiring for people to do like high level diving, like mm-hmm. to, to be able to go do that. Like, I don't know if you've ever jumped off the high dive. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, no, nope. I'm in, uh, it's super high. Like, like you're up there and you're Sweet. like, I can't believe people are doing flips, but yeah, like that level or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, the but there's, there's right? some people that have like, you know, zero fear with it and can get and do that stuff. It, yeah. You just get wet, man. So I guess to close out, cause we are running short on time here, doc. Um, you know, I, a big takeaway for me is that visiting a podiatrist doesn't have to be about putting out a fire, that there is a bit of this preventative care that it can be super beneficial in terms of like just longitudinally maintaining foot health, but also understanding in my experience. So to expand upon what Texan mentioned earlier, when I visited a podiatrist, one of his claims for the reason you need a, Orthotic. Do you know how small the muscles of your feet are? They can't handle the ballistic loads that the feet are under. And I, I just, I knew that. Was this the false. dude I went to? Yeah. So oh, hang on, God. hang on. Yeah. Um, so like, I, I don't know. I'm going to go back to that dude. Right. And I wish I knew going in there, the right questions to ask to peel out before I, I even entered, you know what I mean? So is there, do you, can you impart anything upon our listeners and maybe myself personally uh, on how can we select or screen for podiatrists who have their head on straight and don't, aren't trying to just pedal to, to keep the lights on, which I understand there, like there's a cost associated with the business, but this was a clear, like he was trying to deceive my wife and I and, and the, we walked out of there with a pretty negative experience. Uh, okay. So one, I would say they're very far and few in between. Shit. So uh, I get asked (laughs) all the time that, uh, someone's like, Oh, you know, I'm not in New York or I'm not in New York or can't fly to New York. Do you know anyone in Illinois, California, Texas, Arizona? And uh, I don't, I know a few that have gone through my training. Um, a few that will speak and kind of favor more natural movement and won't push you into orthotics and are open if you want to wear Vivo barefoot or something like that. Um, they're very far in between. So go off a referral or a recommendation if you can. Um, if you're pre-screening them based off of looking at their website or something like that, um, if they're heavy into surgery, just in general, podiatrists are either very heavy surgical and they see through the lens of a scalpel, like a blade. That's the way that they're taught to look. Um, Or if they're on the other side of just super conservative and they just push towards orthotics, you can, hopefully you can kind of filter that out. Um, Anyone who does sports medicine, hopefully, if you look to see if they do sports medicine or see if you can get a referral from a physical therapist you trust or maybe you would be in in better interest to see a chiropractor that is integrated versus a podiatrist but if you have a very foot specific um kind of go off that referral i do virtual consultations not to sell myself but you know no feel free to because i'm certain my baby um is uh is that um me doing virtual consultations. I did virtual consultations before COVID um, because I was just set up for it. A lot of my patients are actually not from New York. They're actually not from the United States. And people would fly in from different states to New York or different countries to have me take a look and give uh, an outside the box perspective. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that is something that I can do. And then I often can even be like a sounding board. If you do see a local podiatrist and you say, these are my recommendations now filter them out. Or if someone needs to have surgery, I will give a second opinion on that surgery and say like, this is what I would look for. Um, I was trained as a surgeon. I did surgery for five years and now I do second opinions on the need for surgery. And that's how I build my practice. That's good to know. That's what I was ultimately leading into is if, you know, and, and where would we be able to contact you or try to set up an appointment? Uh, so my, my practice is my name. So dremilysplickle.com. DrEmilySplickle.com is how I set up my practice. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, it's more functional medicine. I do regenerative medicine. So I do a lot of stem cells out of my office and um, functional medicine, functional movement. That's really what it's built around. Majority of my patients have seen 10 other practitioners before they see me, or they're looking specifically for someone who's not going to push them in orthotics, which is similar to what you're saying. And again, understanding there's nothing necessarily wrong with orthotics, but if that's the blank, if that's just the shotgun approach, that right. probably is a red flag. Well, right? the weird part is you went there for toe fungus and they try to give you orthotics, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> My wife and I, is, and he's like, nope, you need orthotics. Yeah, you're, you're, like, <laughs> hey, I'm here for some toe fungus. He's like, well, you need orthotics. Now you're this like, whoa, whoa, whoa. from microtrauma of the nail because you guys need orthotics. I'm like, I don't think so, man. This thing is funky. You know what I mean? Like, it was... That's true. Yeah. Okay, so that goes back to my original example that I said, people will look at it as just like this money driver practice mm -hmm. management, the push orthotics on every patient. That is the textbook example of what is creating confusion for mm -hmm. individuals, confusion for patients. And it really makes the profession look bad. Yeah. So yeah, it was a bad that. experience. It, it, it makes me angry because I'm proud to be a podiatrist, but then when you have people, you know, recommending, you know, dumb shit like that, it, it mm. makes podiatry look bad. Yeah, I should have known when I walked in and it was like golden orthotics everywhere, you know, and it's like orthotic salesman of the year. Well, <laughs> That's a, not true. Well, the, uh, um, I got into it because, um, like, it, you know, growing up in Southern California, we always wore bands and, like, just, mm -hmm. like, the basic bands, which have been zero drops since, like, 1966. And uh, I've always worn them. And, like, the guy went in there and he's like, oh, you shouldn't be wearing those yeah, shoes. Yeah, bad for your feet. Yeah, they, they're bad for your feet. You have, you have no support. And I was like, dude, these have been zero drops since 1966, and I've worn these. And then he was like, oh, yeah. And he's, like, arguing with me. And I'm like, dude, I don't believe any of this shit. And, like, I'll tell you where my history, you know. And I'm so I'm, like, arguing with them. And I'm like, yo, man, like, I, like I'm the wrong, like, I'm just the wrong person for this. And so, uh, yeah, Luke goes to him and he's like, the guy tried to sell you orthotics. I went yeah. there just trying to get like rid of all came back to me that you were telling me about this guy months earlier. But I, <laughs> yeah. Doc, I saw your eyes light up when John was talking about vans. Did, did you have something to say on that? No, 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 no. I okay. just, the, the, did my eyes light up? Yeah. These weirdos have the five fingers. I yeah, refuse to wear those sick. things. But, uh, like, just the basic 60s vans have been uh, a staple for us in like within training shoes just because you can run you know run them loose you can splay your toes they're super flat and um can know. i speak to defend us we bought those in 2010 <laughs> so one shame on us for still having them and no. sometimes wearing them two yeah we've got like a murder hornet in here doc i know i'm see. looking at your guys's reaction i'm like is, is oh there... it, this is hilarious it's like those you see kids at a little league game there's a bee in the outfield uh -huh. And they're running around like crazy, and you don't know. Got him, big guy. Yeah, get him. We got him, Doc. That is a dead wasp. That's what it gets. It has, it has all these cracks to escape, and it chose not to. 
it ended its own life. We are not at fault. Fucking murder hornets. I'm not going to tell who is it. Jamie or Killy? Who's sa- Jamie? Saving uh, a bug. Yeah, my daughter is like the bug whisperer. Like the <laughs> like like we can't kill any bugs because like uh, I think I I think somebody in school talked about like different religions and reincarnation and like the Hindu deal, and so like now she like thinks that every bug could have been a relative. <laughs> And like, like, like I'm out there like stomping on stuff, and she's like, "You don't know." I'm like, "Oh God, damn it!" <laughs> That's awesome, Emily. Do you uh, have any social media for us to follow? Not only your your future book coming out. Oh yeah, when that gets going, yeah, let's know. Uh, so that'll be in the next couple months. Um, I can tell you the name of it. Footastic. Oh, that's a good one. Let me okay. write that down. Okay. No. <laughs> burn. That's a burn. That is a burn. Uh, actually, uh, hopefully you guys will like the title of it because it's a little bit evolutionarily tied in, but it's called Sensory Sapiens. So oh. it's the role of sensory information in uh, mood, memory, and movement. So optimizing cognitive, emotional regulation, and then movement or athletic performance through the role of sensory information, both exteroceptively and interoceptively, which is literally our entire conversation. Mm-hmm. That's my book. So oh, that's awesome. No, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we'll we'll have to deep dive in the book and then get you back on for a discussion. That's right. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, my Instagram, sorry, um, uh, is uh, DPM. So Dr. Emily DPM is my Instagram. Um, and then I have an education company, which is EBFA Global. So that's the website, um, but that's EBFA underscore barefoot education. Awesome. awesome. Dr. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time. Power Athlete Nation, I bet you thought we were just going to be talking about toes and arches, and we got deep. I thought it was awesome. Oh, yeah. This was super fun. Uh, I guess until next time, Doc, we'll see you later. Thank, thank you, you yeah. very much. Much. Thank you. It was awesome. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Dr. Emily on Instagram under the handle at Dr. Emily DPM or visit our website ebfaglobal.com. Until next time, bye.